and abounding in absolute, steadfast, faithful love. We're thankful that you do not deal with us according to how our sins deserve or repay us according to the iniquities that we have done. But you are merciful. Your love is steadfast. It is from everlasting to everlasting. Surely judgment will come for those who would rebel against your gracious gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I pray for the many that may hear our voice, the many that may be worshiping in fellowships around this globe that are preaching the word. I pray that it will go forth in great power, that it will call through your spirit, call many to indeed confess Jesus Christ as Lord and find great blessing in you, not just for a time hereafter, but a time even now in which our hearts can be regenerated, our minds can be renewed, and we can praise your holy name and then rejoice in who you are. We pray with the angels to bless you, O Lord. Those who obey your voice, bless you, O Lord. All the host, his ministers who do his will, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. And yes, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Amen. You may stand and graduate him again for number 535. We'll sing, I am thine, O Lord. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In his
Amen. This morning we're going to read two passages of Scripture. So uh, the first passage is going to be Psalm chapter 41. If you don't have your Bible this morning, that's going to be page 469 in your, in your uh, pew Bible. Psalm 41, page 469. And then we're going to turn to John 13 after that. John 13, 12. It's going to be page 900 in your pew Bible if you don't have your Bible this morning. So 469, Psalm 41, and page 900, John 13. So get those loaded up so we can uh, flip there pretty quick. While everybody's doing that, um, I'm just going to read what... Uh, Charles Spurgeon said about John 13 in this morning and evening while everybody's getting prepared and flipped for the scriptures. Uh, let's love what he said about John chapter 13 before we started and getting the Psalm, Psalm 41 as well. So just think about this as we read this together. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus loves his people so much that every day he is still doing for them much that is analogous to washing their soiled feet. Their poorest actions he accepts. Their deepest sorrow he feels. Their slenderest wishes he hears. And their every transgression he forgives. Yes. He is still their servant as well as their friend and master. He not only performs majestic deeds for them as wearing the mitre on his brow and the precious jewels glittering on his breastplate and standing up to plead for them, but humbly, patiently, he yet goes among his people with his basin and the towel. He does this when he puts away from us day by day our constant infirmities and sins. Last night, when you bowed the knee, you mournfully confessed that much of your conduct was you must mourn afresh that you have fallen again into the same folly and sin from which special grace delivered you long ago. And yet Jesus will have great patience with you. He will hear your confession of sin. He will say, I will be thou clean. He will again apply the blood of sprinkling and speak peace to your conscience and remove every spot and soil. It is a great act of eternal love when Christ once for all absolves the sinner and puts him into the family of God. But what condescending patience there is when the Savior with much long-suffering bears the recurring follies of his wayward disciple, day by day, hour by hour, washing away the multiplied transgressions and sins of his erring yet beloved child. Psalm 41. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor, in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trust, 
whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay him. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. amen. Let's go over to John 13. Again, that's 900 in your pew Bible. We're going to read verses 12 through 20. John 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this glorious day of fellowship and worship of your word. Lord, we don't deserve your blessings today. We're totally depraved apart from you in our sin. Lord, we want to thank you for the sound of children today. Lord, we ask God that you save our children. Yes, God. That you protect them from the toils to come. Yes. Lord, help us to preach and live the word faithfully mm -hmm. in our homes, God. Help us to set godly examples that point to Christ alone. Yes. And repentance alone in Christ. Yes. Lord, help us to be servants in every aspect of our lives. Lord, to our families workplace, in the marketplace. Let everyone see a set-apart people, a different people. People that don't live for this world, but for the world to come. Lord, we continue to thank you for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition in your word. We ask, Lord, that you give us hunger for holiness more and more daily. Give us, Lord, a hunger for your word, a hunger for sanctification. Lord, we desire to exalt your name today. Lord, we ask that you open our hearts and minds to worship and song, and most of all, to the preaching of your word. God, we ask that you break any hard heart here today and save anyone that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Lord, this week as we travel, give us strength to preach the gospel and opportunity to preach the gospel. We ask that you bless this offering today, Lord, and guide us to use it wisely. For your glory alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Amen.
considered 4 through 11, the first part, focused on the Holy Spirit's work towards, and I use sinners, or the world system, the unregenerate. This week, the focus will be to the saints. Jesus is going away. He'll send the Holy Spirit to continue his ministry, his work. To the world, to sinners, if you will. The world at large, it will be a work of conviction, convincing and demonstrating the world about concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is precisely what Jesus did. Don't misunderstand it. He called people to repentance and faith. He called people to repent of their sin because judgment is certain. Certain then, certain now. And the only way to escape will be perfect righteousness. A righteousness which you cannot achieve from your own doing and you must look to another. Should I say who it is? You know. It is Jesus. And as that hymn said, come, rise, go to him. He will receive you. And so this is the proclamation of Jesus. He exposed the world of its darkness. And as John will tell us in his gospel, they rejected the light of this glorious Christ because their deeds were evil. That is, their deeds were sinful. Jesus demonstrated his perfect righteousness in all of his attitudes, in all of his affections, and certainly all of his actions. By comparison, all men fall short of that glory. Jesus called people to repent then and trust in him, find their refuge in him. He explained... The default state of mankind is fallen, <coughs> condemned already. This is a general message, a message to the world, a message which is needed then, a message is needed now, a message concerning sin, a message concerning judgment and righteousness, the hope of the uh, uh, being remedied from the consequences of sin, which is indeed judgment. This is his general message to the world, a theme that is not often repeated enough, certainly, in pulpits today. But I assure you, the work of the Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus Christ even today in this world. The message of Christ is being proclaimed and many are being called to find their righteousness in Jesus Christ and to be spared of the judgment to come. This is the work of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of his word. Those who repent and believe and trust in Christ, who confess their sin, confess Jesus Christ as Lord, are then saints, holy ones. Now that might be hard for you to hear and feel, particularly if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Today, that's not a common way to refer to those that are in Christ, to those that are in the church. We might feel comfortable with being called Christians or disciples, but Jesus calls you saints, holy ones. I think perhaps one reason we don't use that as much today is because we have really a misunderstanding what it means to be a saint. In our colloquial conversation, we might talk about so-and-so over there. Well, that's a saint. And we say that because, well, they're a pretty good person. They do a lot of good things. Or maybe you might come from a tradition uh, from the Roman Catholic perspective, which has really perverted the idea of a saint and not just a good person, but someone extra phenomenal and one that has merited great merit and enough to where if you were to pray to them, they might give you some of their merit so you could stand righteous before God. Let me tell you, that's a perversion of the idea of saint and sainthood. You're not a saint because you do things better than the next guy or really the most magnanimous person in the world. You're a saint because of one person, the righteous one, that is Jesus Christ. All of those that are in Christ then are said to be holy ones because not of their merit, not of their doing, but of Christ's. So when you're called a saint or a holy one, it isn't because you're better than the next guy or doing better. It is because you're in Christ and he is the holy one. A Christian is a little Christ that is identified in Christ, made holy by his merits. This is a common salutation that has been given in Scripture I'll just read some of them out to you, and you can be reminded of it the next time you read through some of these letters to the churches, to the congregations, to the saints. This is how Paul addressed the church at Rome. Those who are in Rome, Romans 1-7, who are loved by God and called to be holy ones, saints. To the church at Corinth, which was really a church that had a lot of issues and problems. Paul had to write two letters to them. Both of them kind of reprimanded some of their error. First Corinthians, nevertheless, 1-2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And then the second letter, another letter of admonition, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God who is at Corinth with all the saints, the holy ones, who are in the whole of Achaia. To the church at Ephesus, Paul writes as an apostle, of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are the faithful in Christ Jesus. To the church at Philippi, 1-1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. 
Church of Colossae, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The saints are holy ones because they are in Christ. And it is a great term to use and to think of, of who you are positionally in Christ. If you have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, you are, have been made righteous by him, not in your practice, but in his, and it has been imputed to you, and therefore God looks on you in that sense as a saint. It doesn't mean that all of sin in this life has been eradicated. It hasn't. It will, you will still struggle with it in this life. Uh, there will be some wretchedness that sin that remains after uh, regeneration that will not be taken away until you die. But nevertheless, positionally in Christ, those that are in Christ can be thought of as saints. Paul would say in the third chapter of Colossae, I'll read, read to you just to describe those that are in Christ. He calls them God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Colossians chapter 3. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and turn there. Colossians chapter 3. And you can, if you want to see that, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 3. I didn't write this down, but I just thought of this. 3.12, he's, at, he's admonishing this group of saints at the church of Colossae and describes them in those three terminologies. And recognizing who you are in Christ then affects how you behave. Know those three things about those that are in Christ, chosen, holy, and beloved, and then do this. Put on then, because of who you are in Christ, that is what impels you then to do what? To be compassionate towards others, to be kind towards one another, have humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, then you forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive. See, understanding this doctrine then of being a saint is, is not something to puff you up. It would cause humility. It is not something that would cause you to be arrogant and hateful and mean towards another. No, it would be kindness. Chosen just means elect. God chose you. That's why you're a saint in him. Holy just means to be set apart. Chosen, set apart. And that third word there in Colossians 3.12 is beloved. God has a specific love for those that he has chosen and made holy in Christ. You have a unique relationship and there is a distinction in his love. Just as there is a distinction in human love, trust me, I love every one of you. And if you came for help, I'd help you as much as I can. But if you're one of my children, <laughs> they're going to get special priority. You understand that, right? Right? 
And same with yours, because you have a special responsibility, a special relationship. And likewise, for those that are in Christ, you are beloved, beloved because Christ is loved by the Father, and that is the relationship there. This fine, I set this up this way because I wanted to take a lot of time. No. <laughs> I knew already I wasn't going to finish this, so I, uh, I, I, don't think, I don't expect to completely finish my sermon, so come back next week and we'll take care of the rest of it. So, but the reason I brought this up here is so that you can think as we move now from the Holy Spirit, Christ sending the Holy Spirit to, to the world, to sinners, if you will, the world at large, to, to bring about uh, the revelation and convincing of sin, judgment, and righteousness. He has a distinctive work for those that are his own, for his saints. That is a little different than, than that uh, charge, and that's what we're going to get to today. And I hope, I'll go ahead and read this entire context beginning at verse 4 in John chapter 16, and we'll go through verse 15. Our focus, though, will be from verse 12 to verse 15. The first part, remember, will be the Christ sending the Holy Spirit in general to the world, but now specifically to these holy ones, to those that are chosen, to those that are holy in Christ, to those who are his beloved. Let's read it in that context and see if you can notice this distinction to those that are his own. Beginning in verse 4, chapter 16 in John, I'll read this. Christ says, I have many things, these things, I have said many these things to you that when their hour comes, you remember that I told them to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me and and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper who will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you'll see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged now verse 12 I still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. <coughs> Father, we pray that we will hear and heed the words of Christ today. The, the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit bring about conviction in all of these matters and comfort to your saints. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if I've 
really divided this section here, remember 4 through 11 is focuses primarily to sinners and 12 through 15 to the saints. <coughs> Notice verse 7. He emphasizes to his disciples there, though, it is to your advantage that he goes away. Why is it better? Why is it better that Christ goes away and the Holy Spirit then comes, another of the same kind, to take his place? Here's a unique thing in which the apostles and those that would follow in their steps would be then able to proclaim the very words of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, those simple and foolish words would then be powerfully engaged with the Holy Spirit to bring about a conviction of sin, a conviction of judgment, and finding their righteousness in Jesus Christ. Listen, if I was charged like these apostles might have been, and as we are in following the, in their steps, to go out and make disciples of all nations... I can't make anybody hard to do anything. <laughs> Everyone has a better idea and a better way of doing it. How am I going to convince them? Well, that's not really my job. My job is simply to proclaim the truth. And as Paul said on numbers of occasions, but particularly at, at Corinth, he said, well, I didn't come here to give you a bunch of wisdom, great worldly ways and, and convincing and a bunch of evidence for this or that. I just preach Christ and him crucified. And what happens? It is this helper that Christ said, that sent, this, that accompanies that message of the gospel and does the work that you cannot do. You ever feel frustrated in that and proclaiming the gospel? And you said, I don't know if I'm talking to deaf ears or not. Well, that's fine. Believe. Have faith. Just proclaim it. He will bring about the conviction in the heart of man. It is the Spirit's work to do this. It is the Spirit's work that brings about faith. It isn't based on how good of an argument or presentation or whatever. The very simple things can bring people from death to life because of the work of the Holy Spirit. No wonder Christ said, this is going to be better. It is the Spirit's work. But beyond that, today as we focus here, if we go back to verse 12 here, I'll just summarize it this way, and I'll probably at least get half of this. And that is, this, the Holy Spirit, what will he do with those that have already repented and believed in Christ? For those who are the elect, who are the holy, who are the beloved in Christ, well, he's going to tell them, then the Holy Spirit still has a work to do among the saints. And what is that? Two things, two categories. One is to guide. And two is to glorify. Let's look at that in our text. Verse 12, he says, that's Jesus here in the upper room. I've got much, much more to tell you. Now, he spent three years telling them a lot of things. 
But now he says, I've got more to tell you, at least tonight. But, you know, it's getting late in the evening. The crucifixion is on hand. And he still has more to tell them. But he recognizes that they can't bear that now. They can only handle so much. They have a limited capacity. He wanted to do two things for them. One, he wanted to remind them once again, as he has been doing since chapter 13, about some of the things that he has already taught them. And that's helpful when you teach, whether it's children or anyone, to be reminded of these things. And so there was much more he still wanted to remind his disciples about. But there was a second thing also that Christ wanted to do that they couldn't quite bear now, and that is, you know, there's actually more information to be known. That's called revelation. And he would reveal additional information to them. But they weren't quite ready for it at this juncture right here. That will be something that is future and yet to come. That reminding... And that revelation, both will come by the Holy Spirit who Jesus will send to do that very thing. To continue the work of reminding and revelation, revealing, if you will, to the very saints of God. Notice here in verse 13... When the Spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, by the way, this is the last, he's, he's gone through this a number of times about the Holy Spirit, and we'll review chapter 14 and 15, but here's the last word on the Holy Spirit. And the last word on the Holy Spirit has to do with the saints, okay? So here is this final word. He says, when he comes, he's going to do what, verse 13? He will guide you in to all truth. Notice that first phrase. All truth. Mankind then and even now and today has a great crisis concerning the truth. Mostly because men are liars. <laughs> even some of the best. This, this crisis is not new to our day. It has existed since the father of lies stepped into the Garden of Eden. When Satan showed up, he influenced men then to question God, and that's where falsehood comes into play. I talked about this last week to some degree. God is absolute verity. He is true. Now, if your questioning is, oh, I don't understand, uh, that's understandable. Because of God's infinite capacity of knowing all things from the very beginning to the very end. So if you don't understand, that's fine. But to question in the sense of rebellion against him, well, that is foolishness. God is always true. Truth is an expression of who he is. And whether you understand it or not is really immaterial. God is absolutely true. Listen to the prophet Isaiah as he 
explains the very nature of God in Isaiah 65, 16. A God, he says, who blesses the land by himself, the God of truth, and who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. That's what he calls him. This is who God is. He's the God of truth, not because he's following some sort of standard, because he is true. And so anything that he would say, anything that he would do is true. Jesus Christ came to earth, and if you want to follow along, because I'll just walk through John, it'll be easy for you to just kind of back up and remind you of, of just a few of these things. Turn back to John chapter 1. When Jesus comes and takes on flesh, describing who he is, notice how truth is associated with Jesus. The Holy Spirit will guide us on truth. Who is truth? It is Jesus Christ. I would say he's truth incarnate. Look at 1.9. He's called the true light, which gives light to everyone, as opposed to darkness by analogy. Look at verse 14. <coughs> John talks about this incarnation. So his source ultimately is truth, and then he comes and takes on flesh. Verse 14, he dwells among us, and then we have seen the glory that, remember, is the beauty of his divine attributes. And what is it? The glory as the only son of the Father. And how does he describe him? Full of grace and truth. Full of a gift and, notice this quality about him, he is absolutely true. In 3.33, speaking of his testimony, whoever receives that, they understand that God is true. That is always perfectly true. 7.28, Jesus says, Well, I haven't come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. In other words, this is a way of phrasing here. I'm not just making this stuff up as I go. This is a reflection of who God is, which is absolutely true. And the fact that you don't believe Jesus Christ demonstrates you're not of the truth. You're not of the Father. 8.26 I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Again, demonstrating here is not something invented on his own, but something revealed, revelation of absolute truth in which he declares. What did he hear? He hears truth, always truth. Chapter 18, just as a summary, 18 I'm sorry, yeah, 1837, 1837 of John. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. He's there before Pilate, summarizing, telling really what Christ is about. What is he about? 1837, to bear witness to the truth. Right? Say, from the very beginning to the very end, this is Christ is doing. He's revealing absolute truth. 
Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And ironically, Pilate said, what is truth? <laughs> he does recognize, even Pilate, that I could find no, what? Guilt. He could find no lie in him. He could only find truth in Christ. He asked, what is truth? And there it is, staring him in the face. And why can't he see it in the sense of hearing him and listening to his voice? Clearly he has said this. It demonstrates that he is not, that would be Pilate, not of the truth. God is truth. He is, Christ is truth incarnate. He is all truth. The Holy Spirit then is sent to the saints, Christ's beloved ones, to guide them then in that very truth. Where will the Holy Spirit guide them? What source? It will be in his holy word. The psalmist would put it this way, Psalm 119, 116. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endure forever. Why does God's righteous rules endure forever from the very beginning to the very end? They don't change because they're a reflection of his very character, his very nature, which never changes. By the way, we change all kinds of rules all the time, don't we? Ideas about what is right and what is wrong. You look in past cultures, they did things a certain way, and now we do it this way, and now we're right. None of us will be alive in 200 years, but should the Lord tarry, guess what? There'll be books written about us and our culture and how we did everything that was wrong <laughs> or not right. <laughs> Maybe they'll tear down some of our statutes and monuments and so forth as well. Can I tell you someone that is right and that is God? And you want to know what truth is, there is an objective truth sitting in most of your laps or on your computer device. And this is the only, it is the truth of his absolute word. Now, the Holy Spirit is going to come. Christ has sent him. He's here now. And the, the word here in our text is that he will guide his disciples in all truth. There's three aspects in which he will guide. The first is the past. Remember, he says, I'm going to send him, and he, I have many more things to tell you, Jesus said. Right? Many more things to remind you about, and many more things to tell you about in the future. Well, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and this is how he works among his saints. One is to remind about the past. Let's go to the, the um, first mention here in 1426 of John, and you'll, look at the, and you'll see that text there. And it says that very thing. The, uh, another text concerning sending the Holy Spirit, 1426 of John. This helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll do what? He will teach you all things and he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Note the phrase there, he will bring to your remembrance. Jesus had more things for them to remember. 
How would they remember them? How will we remember them? It is through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit will work with the precepts, if you will, of Christ and bring them to your remembrance. This includes, by the way, all that he has said prior to this time. It includes the entirety of the Old Testament. If you remember in John, you can write this down in 546. He challenged those that opposed him, the Jewish leaders there. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. All of this is about Christ from the very beginning to the very end. This, by the way, rules out the modern liberal thought of the documentary hypothesis. Somebody asks me who wrote the, if you're not familiar with it, they, they object to the writing of the Old Testament to Pentateuch by Moses. And I have a simple answer. I'd rather believe Jesus than Karl Graf or Julius Wilhausen. Let's see, a couple German skeptics from the, where were they at, 1800s? Or Jesus Christ, God incarnate, truth, who rose from the dead. No thanks, I'll believe Jesus. Moses wrote the Old Testament. He wrote about Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit that will bring this to remembrance and all of it that is written in the Scripture. This includes all that Jesus directly taught the disciples and all that has been recorded in Holy Scripture. They'll be reminded of the truth. He's not going to bring about an awareness of things that, that you don't know. And you haven't been read, than you haven't read or reveled in before. And that's critical. Some people have the idea, well, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's just going to bring stuff in, into my mind. That's revelatory, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the emphasis here for the saints, for then and, and now, who would follow in steps, is that the Holy Spirit will bring this up to your recollection. Bring what up? Well, all the things that Christ has taught. Christ isn't here to teach you, but he has sent his disciples to do that very thing, to teach all things that Christ has taught, and where are, where are those things? They're in his holy word. You struggle in your Christian life if you don't take a healthy diet of his word, you're going to be emaciated. And quite frankly, you can disagree with me if you like, but I don't see how you're going to bring something up in remembrance in this context that you've never actually heard before. The, the idea is you, you meditate on his word day and night. You hide it in your heart. In some cases, actually memorize it. But at least read it and just think about it to dwell on it, to have it part of your life. And the Holy Spirit then, what he's going to do is bring these things up to remembrance. 
In what circumstances might it be that this remembrance will be helpful? I'll tell you one. When you're depressed, when you're anxious, when you have great crisis in your life and great concerns, maybe you could remember the psalmist said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Maybe the next time you struggle with sin, you think about the words of Christ and the teaching given to the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 when he thinks about his own condition. Oh, wretched man that I am. Really, the most righteous person outside of Christ that I can think of would be the Apostle Paul, and he considers his own ability as wretched. He describes a struggle from within trying to do that as what is right, and yet there's something always pulling them back. But the remembrance that is brought up is this, that Christ will give the victory even in that. Where is the victory? It is in Jesus Christ. There is much help in God, much hope in God. I think also the Holy Spirit will also bring up to remembrance those things that you have hidden in your heart when you need to deal with somebody else. Whether it's in an evangelistic opportunity, the words will come at that point in time that you have hidden in your heart that you'll be able to share. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring these things up to remembrance. Have you ever had that kind of experience where you said something actually fitting in the time of somebody's need, whether it was to counsel somebody, to comfort them, maybe it was a time to convict them of their own sin and you brought something up. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit is, to do that, at, to be able to um, uh, prepare your heart and mind for that particular moment in time in which you can recall the Word of God. But again, you're not going to get it in your heart for him to bring up for recollection without spending time in it. So I do encourage you to do that. But the Holy Spirit will bring it up in times of need for remembrance for your own self and for others that you might minister to. The second thing in this guiding is not only about the past and what has been written and recorded in Scripture and bringing that up to the, the remembrance, but also the very present, that is, right now. He will remind you of Christ even in this present time and now. This is beyond just the precepts of Scripture. This is talking about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Here I'd like for you to jump to the second mention of the work of the Holy Spirit in 1526 as Jesus goes through this teaching. 1526, he says, well, when, in John 1526, he says, when this helper comes, who I'm going to send, notice here the spirit of truth, he's going to guide you in truth, and here truth is related to Jesus, to the spirit, he will do what? He will bear witness about me. This is in the present tense. This is now. It's not just only bringing up to remembrance about Christ, his word, all of scripture, but really even in the 
right now. This is speaking of a personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. A personal fellowship with Christ when, wait a minute, Christ was going away. He sends the helper so that they can have that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ in the present hour in which they existed. And beloved, they would need it. And so do you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that those that are in Christ have, that those in the world do not have, and that is a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal witness of Christ. When we receive this elements of Holy Communion, it only brings up to remembrance of Christ, but it is the Holy Spirit that works to remind us that he is present even now with us. He's even present with you in your darkest day. And though you walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, he's there. He's with you. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I think I've got time to read most of this because it's beautiful. Let's see what else I got. Yeah, I'm going to get at least my first point done, so... He's going to bear witness, and I pull this section out in 1 Peter because it expresses that idea here that um, is really hard to quantify. But just to back it up to recognize who this is, is being directed towards, this is not towards the world. It's not towards sinners. This is towards saints. Remember, saints are those that are made holy by Christ. Peter praises in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, that's the idea of blessing, praise, if you will, blessed be the God and Father of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. And note this, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice here, again, it's God's work that brings about this new life. That's the illustration. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, caused to be born again, brought to life. And that is his great mercy because you would otherwise deserve to be dead and not born again. Instead, he causes you to be born again and granted this living hope through Jesus Christ. Beyond that, to give, verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Very secure. Do you see this, beloved? This is why you need to read the scripture so that this can come to your mind, to, to your mind and you can be reminded of this by the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded then through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is talking about the final end, the glorification. This is the final end for those that are saints, fully revealed in his glory. Now, why do you keep your faith? It is through his power. 
And Paul will explain to us that this power is a sealing of this very Holy Spirit. He is guarding you now. It's ready to be revealed. And in this, then, your response, verse 6, is, is joy. It's rejoicing. Though for now a little while, it's necessary that you've been grieved by various trials. So the life that you live, it'll have some frustration. So that the genuineness, so, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why? Because, as I said before, a Christian, a true Christian, will not deny the faith. He'll go through the fire. He might be tested, but all it's going to do is burn away those imperfections, those things that don't look like Jesus Christ, and at the end, in great honor of Jesus Christ in his revelation, which is, by the way, why Christ saves anyone. It isn't because he couldn't live, stand to live without you. He lived in absolute perfect union and love with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in perfect unity, in perfect um, union. Why would he save anyone? It's right here, to the praise and the glory and honor of Christ. That's why. Paul says it three times in Ephesians 1. If you're not sure, go back and look. Why would he save anyone? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Why would he save you? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Why would he save me? To the praise of the glory of his grace. And recognizing that then, the Holy Spirit works in the present hour to cause this to happen, which I cannot explain. Though, verse 8, you have not seen him, you love him. Do you love Jesus Christ? That's the question. Is that the affections of your heart? I've never seen him. Have you? These people that put some false idea about how they saw some sort of vision and how that was great. That, that, that's, a, that's a vision of nothing. This is far greater. This is the work of the Holy Spirit that changes the affections of the heart to where, you know what? My life is about Christ. My life is confessing Him as Lord. I want to please Him. I'm not doing this in perfection, but this is where my heart is. And when I stray, there's something inside that compels me to want to confess and trust Jesus Christ. And when someone does something against me, it causes me, yes, maybe not instantly, but at some point, the Holy Spirit works in my heart and, rec and reminds me, oh, I've been forgiven of a great debt against God, and Christ has forgiven me all of this. When I lose whatever, I have an eternal inheritance in Christ forever and ever. And I love Him. I love Him right now. Not perfectly. But the fact I have any affections at all from him are through the work of the Holy Spirit in the very present, in right now. That's what Christ has said. And you know what? That's a lot better, isn't it? Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. I believe in Christ. Do you believe in Christ? 
If you believe in Christ, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit right now. And you know what? That all, that's all that matters. What matters is right now, do you believe in Christ? Not, oh, I believed in him years ago, but I don't believe in him now. Sorry, you never believed in him. You don't know him. And he doesn't know you in that sense. Know in a personal way. Know in a real way. Know in a love and affectionate way. I love Christ. I've never seen him. I believe in Christ. My response here in the text is like Peter's. We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your soul. That's good enough for me. The fact that I can know Christ and praise him and get a glimpse of his glory, that's plenty enough. The Holy Spirit works. Paul would describe it this way in a doctrinal way concerning salvation in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. He would say this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that is our human spirit, our immaterial being, that we are the children of God. Do you have that personal witness? If you do, it's because Christ sent the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and he'll guide you in the presence in his love. Finally, let's go back to chapter 16 and look at verse 13. We considered the, the, the past... In the, in the precepts of his word, the Holy Spirit will bring this to your recollection when needed. In the present, he will bring about the glory and beauty of Christ even right now. But there is a future aspect I think is right that's mentioned here. In, if you notice verse 13, he said he will, look at the last phrase there, he will declare to you the things that are to come. This is revelatory. For the apostles, they were actually born along by the Holy Spirit to write this down. We call this the doctrine of inspiration. For us, we will be able to read those things about the future. I'll give you two examples in Scripture with the time that remains. One is a category called, this is, <clears throat> remember, the, he says, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you there's things I have to remind you about, but the past, the present, but also have to bring about those things that haven't been said yet. And I would give them two categories. One is there are revelatory things that are a mystery. In other words, it wasn't previously known. The second category is about the end of the age. For the mystery part, an example of it, let's look at Ephesians 3 if you want. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, this is 
information that wasn't known. So if in clearly, if you will, you, you could get implications of it and some understanding, but the clarification there is given by the Holy Spirit to the apostles, which is given to us today, Ephesians 3. So when, when you read about it from prior to this time, it wasn't known. We call it a mystery in theology. Paul talks about his stewardship that he was given of God's grace in verse 1 and 2. And look at verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've br written briefly. Mystery is previously unknown and it had to be known how. Christ didn't teach on this. The prophets didn't teach on this. This is new revelation. Revelation that the Holy Spirit would then make known. So when you read this, you can proceed, perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. See? This is the fulfillment of the promise that Christ gave. When he made this promise is, we have this written down for us right here. What is this particular mystery here that he's talking about? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's a mouthful, and that would be a whole sermon right there. Think on that. This wasn't known before. All the promises made before were to Israel. All the promises were made to the Jews. And God covenanted with them, even the new covenant. So how are you any part of it? Oh yeah, that Christ fella. You're in Christ. That's how everything then is yes and amen because we are in Christ made one to the beloved. That's the good news, and that's the gospel. The gospel in which he says, I was made a minister according to God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Whose power? The power of the Holy Spirit. To me, he says, I was the least of, and he uses that word again, <coughs> the least of the saints. His grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that it was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and with confidence through our faith in him. This is a mystery. The church would not supersede Israel, but we would receive the promises of God in Christ Jesus. All Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six as well. The second aspect, that's the mystery. The other one is, of course, Revelation and the Apocalypse, which most people misunderstand to a great degree 
The word apocalypse in our mind sounds like something awful and terrible, which that is included because that is the judgment at the end of the age, which is included, which is spelled out clearly here in the book of Revelation, which you may want to turn to. But the word apocalypse in Greek actually means the revealing or the unveiling. In other words, it's the future being made known. How is the future being made known? This wasn't really that clear or made known prior to that. I know, because Jesus had to teach this, and yet he wasn't, they weren't ready to bear it right then. This would be something done in the future. It would be through the work of the Holy Spirit. John, the same apostle, wrote this letter on the Isle of Patmos in verse 9 of chapter 1 in Revelation. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard this loud voice like a trumpet, verse 11, saying, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. This is the unveiling of the end of the age in which, um, which the Holy Spirit then reveals to John. What does he reveal? Verse 8, Christ. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then all of it is spelled out in the book of Revelation. These things, verse 19 of chapter 1, write therefore the things that you have seen and those that are to take place after this. It's about the end of the age and how it all ends. And you know what? You want to know this story? It ends really well for those that are in Christ. And outside of Christ, it ain't looking so good. You have a lot of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And certain judgment will come. And if you're not wearing the righteous shield of Jesus Christ, you cry out for the rocks to fall on you because you don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus Christ, however, sent the Holy Spirit so that you wouldn't have to experience that. He sent the Holy Spirit to every person to convict them of sin, to warn of pending judgment, and to call them to find their refuge in the only righteous one, that is Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have taken refuge in Christ, it is to remind you of these things. You need to be reminded of it right now so that you will respond in great glory and praise to Jesus Christ. And we'll pick that up next time. Let us pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word that we have. And beyond that, the Holy Spirit, who then can bring these things to our recollection. I wish I had that ability to some degree to cause people to trust in Christ, 
but yet I can't be trusted with such a responsibility because it would be too great for me to handle. But the helper, the spirit of truth, he certainly can. And so we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of unbelievers. I pray that you would regenerate them right now and bring them to faith in Christ. May they be spared of the wrath to come and may they enjoy the great riches that are now and for your people that are called by your name, that are holy and beloved in you. I pray that you increase their capacity to rejoice in Christ even this day and the days to come. Should trouble fall their path and their way, I pray for the Holy Spirit to work in their heart to bring to remembrance these very things. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'll give you a moment privately where you're at to think on these things. Respond directly to Christ as he has spoken to you today. Take a moment now. Father's house are many mansions. I am going to prepare a place for you. John 14, 2. Father, we're indeed thankful for the precious word of God and for the so many precious truths that are contained in it. Father, we <clears throat> look now at Jacob's blessing 
in the book of Genesis, where you've written, May the God before whom Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, and who has redeemed me from all evil, bless you and let his name live on in you and in your children after you forever. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.